hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Today's guest is Métis Cree from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. He is an assistant professor in Métis Studies at York University in Toronto. He's also the winner of the Kobo Emerging Writer Prize in Nonfiction and a winner of the Indigenous Voices Awards. He won a Governor General's Academic Medal in 2016 and is a Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation Scholar and a Vanier Scholar. From the Ashes was a finalist for CBC Canada Reads and the High Plains Book Awards. It was a Globe and Mail Book of the Year, an Indigo Book of the Year, and a CBC Best Canadian Nonfiction Book of the Year. And it's pretty much been on those bestseller lists since it got published, and for damn good reason. It's my pleasure to welcome Jesse Thistle. Jesse, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Bianca. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful to have you. And for our listeners, Jesse is newly a father. So I was asking him before we came on air how exhausted he was. And he said he's very exhausted. But I see him on camera and he's looking very chipper. Yeah, I feel a little, you know, those coffees from Starbucks, they got me in good shape for this. But I am tired. Yeah, it's, it's hard. Yeah, geez, sleep deprivation, man. Well, okay, so we're going to pick your brains, Jesse, and then we're going to let you go. For our listeners, in a nutshell, this book is about a quest for love, for yourself in terms of self-love, for another, like what Jesse found with his wife, Lucy, and a quest to love your people and your heritage, and also a love of society. Now, there's a part in the memoir where a man called Priest gives Jesse advice about the quartermaster job in prison. And Priest says, all us criminals start out as normal people, just like anyone else. But then things happen in life that tear us apart, that make us into something capable of hurting other people. That's all any of the darkness really is. Just love gone bad. We're just broken hearted people hurt by life. Now, Jesse, before we start discussing your advice for memoirists and the nitty gritty of writing the memoir, would you agree that this kind of gets to the core of what your memoir deals with? 
Yes, that's the actual meta arc, I guess you would say, of the book. It's a quest for love, right? I'm emplaced within my community at the beginning. I have the love of my nuclear family, my Kukum and Musham, wrapped around me in my Métis Creek community, and then that's abruptly taken away. And I spend the rest of my life searching for love, searching, you know, and what priests spoke about there, that original wounding that a lot of people who end up to be criminals have, and they start lashing out. That happened to me when I lost that love when I was young, right? And so me getting better and hearing that advice from priests when I was in jail years later, and then coming out of it and finding love with my wife, Lucy, and the emplacement that I found when I got sober and started going back to school, that was all a kind of self-love as well. And so it really clarified and made sense of what had happened to me hearing that in jail. Kind of one of my tools that I use to kind of look at the world, right? I don't look and see if someone's hurting. You know, I don't ask what's wrong with them. I ask what happened to that person? How are they traumatized and why are they doing what they're doing? Instead of just like looking at the spectacle of what they've done wrong, right? And so I would say that's an accurate depiction of my book. It's an inverted quest for love. Yeah. And, you know, I read this book, sure, just more than a year ago, maybe two years ago or when it came out. And it's reframed my entire thinking about most things, because I remember the one day I was walking my dog in the park and there was somebody, a homeless person who walked up to someone else's dog and kicked it in the head. And this upset me so much. And I was so angry with this man who had kicked the dog and it, it bothered me for weeks. And then I remember a few weeks later, I saw a child in the park with the child's father and the child's father told the child to go run up and kick the pigeons. And this child listened to its father because that is what you do. You, you listen to the adults in your life and the child ran and started trying to kick these pigeons. And suddenly something clicked for me. And and the causal relationship between these two things came together. Instead of me going, what kind of a human being goes and kicks a dog? I saw this child being taught to be cruel towards animals and could almost see how this child was going to grow up. Do you think that like that's, you know, a fair assessment? Oh, for sure. That's true empathy, right? Live in the moment when no one's watching, when you're, you have a decision to either judge or try to see past and be empathetic, you know, and you're, the situation you're describing, that's a personal thing. That's not something that you would, you know, I came to this revelation and then posted on Twitter, which a lot of people are doing to virtue signal that they've been empathetic. In that moment, you seeing past that is empathy. That's real empathy and, and living and you know, if my book helped you see that in some way, wow, that's like the biggest compliment you can give me as a writer that talks about very hard social issues that people don't want to talk about or even think about. So thank you very much. And thank you for seeing past that maybe that person had learned that somewhere in their life. And that's why they had acted that way. You don't, you know, we don't know, right? Yeah, 100%. And you know, prior to reading your book and internalizing so much of what you said, I know that, you know, it would have been a complete judgment. It would have been what kind of human being, blah, 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 blah. And it just reframed my thinking so much. And like you said, it's not what the person does, it's what happened to them to kind of, you know, make them behave in that way. And that answers a question that we deal with a lot on the show, Jesse, because we have a ton of people who are writing memoir, who submit to our agents, who submit their query letters and their opening pages. And, you know, our, our agents often say that writing memoir is very personal, obviously. But what it's really important to do when you're trying to sell a memoir is to frame it as why does this book, this very personal story, why should it be out there for other people to read? And and could you answer that for us in terms of your own story? Because perhaps that'll help other people frame their own personal experiences in the same way. Sure. Yeah, that's a great focus and question. Thank you for asking that. So for memoirs, you know, we've all heard the story or the, you know, Thomas King saying that we're all made of stories, right? That we all have a memoir or two in us. Now, some people mistakenly think that, you know, a line of just tragic stuff that happens to someone over the course of their lifetime, that that's a story, that tragedy alone is just a story. And 
It was Emma Donahue. She's the writer of Room. She's a very famous Canadian writer. She was at a walrus event and she said, well, memoir and writing all those tragedies in a row, that doesn't make a good story. I'm sorry. That, that just makes you Irish if you write all your tragedies in a row. And she said, everybody in Ireland would have a memoir. And she said, what you need is tension and story. And it has to tell something inherently, I guess, current and political. What's the message of your memoir? Are you talking about mental health? Then frame it around that topic. Are you talking about indigenous issues around adoption? Then try to frame it around that or highlight that throughout your work. And also to speak to universals as well, right? Speak to the universals of suffering, of loss of innocence, of these are all things that people will connect with. But you, you do have to have a very specific message that you're bringing. That brings out tension. All good story has tension in it, right? And so you have to write it in a way that it, it does have an arc. It does have a peak. It does have a climax, you know? And that's really difficult to do for memoir, right? They say that it's the hardest to do because you're constrained, right? Where with fiction, you can just kind of invent an arc and go with it that way. Where with memoir, you, it's hard for you as the memoirist to pick out what exactly will fit into that meta narrative to create a storyline arc that has tension and that keeps on point. And so you have to keep all those things in mind while you're writing, right? Yeah. I mean, and, you know, so this was this personal journey for you. It was, you know, your own story arc as you pulled yourself from that darkness into self-actualization, into loving yourself, into loving others and, and all of that. But for somebody like me, what I got out of your memoir was, like we spoke earlier, the sense of understanding things that I otherwise hadn't taken the time to properly understand and a way as well to understand the experience of somebody who's Métis Cree. And that's something that's important today in Canada. These are conversations that people need to be having. So yours kind of encapsulated all of that. There was this political discussion. It was a discussion of mental health that made me think about mental health in a different way, but also just this overarching story about, I mean, you and I have spoken before how this isn't a bootstraps story, right? It's not someone pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. So can you just discuss that a bit as well? Sure. Yeah. So my story really is, it's about reconnection and finding love. And so through that, through the love of, I would say, reconnecting with creator, with what I believe to be God or the universe or Allah, whatever you want to call it. That was in the beginning, then making amends to my grandparents, you know, finding the love of an institution like Harvest House that would bail me out and give me a second chance. To all the people that wrapped around me, like Lucy, my mother-in-law, Liba, all my relatives and friends, my uncle Ron. And so in that way, my book is the antithesis of a bootstrap narrative, actually, because I detail probably in two direct and simple terms that when people are reading it, they sometimes miss what I'm actually talking about. I'm talking about all those systems wrapping around me and giving me a chance to choose better for myself. I do have to make the choice, right? You need will, you need the will to change, but you also need the love of all those people that wrap around you in institutions. And that actually charts a way out of my traumas and into love and into community placement. And uh, trauma therapists and addiction specialists say that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. Most people think it's sobriety, it's connection, it's human connection. And I showed that with my narrative. And so in that way, it unseats that, you know, quick application that people sometimes look at my book and say it's a bootstrap narrative. It's not at all, right? It's used by therapists and psychologists around the world because of the pathway that it charts out into, uh, I, I would say, sober living and healthy living today. And so as I wrote it, I was conscious of that. I was like, you know, I have to show all the people that helped me how this actually happened. Because without that, then it becomes, it goes into that dangerous territory where it could be called a bootstrap narrative. Yeah. And, you know, other things that it made me think of as well was you'll see the hypocrisy of so many people talking about how they're pro-life and they'll talk about things like suicide prevention. But when it comes to things like creating housing or creating the kind of institutions that will help people, that these things are actually suicide prevention. This hotline that, you know, somebody phones when they're feeling right at the end of their tether, that is not suicide prevention. We need to be changing the systems that lead 
people to get to the sense of hopelessness, etc. So it got me thinking so much about that, about that kind of hypocrisy, that if you're pro-life, then you need to be pro-changing systems that are going to empower people and enable them to make a living and to be able to get through so many of these things, which means better mental health systems, etc., etc. So for me as a reader, there was so much that I got out of this book that got me thinking about my society and philosophical things at large, and then of course being inspired by your own personal story. So for our listeners, Jesse's route to publication was quite different to what the rest of you might experience. It wasn't that Jesse sat down and wrote his memoir and then sent it out to get an agent. Could you tell us a bit, Jesse, about how it came to be that your memoir was out there? Sure. Yeah, and I don't want other authors out there to hate me because I know the rejection path, and that's that's a long, arduous path for real writers, as I say. Me, I was just a student at York University, and I did really well in my undergrad uh, and my master's, and I graduated the top student there out of 50,000 in LAPS. This is a liberal arts and professional studies program. I was the first indigenous person to do that. And so I won a bunch of like major academic awards and that caught the attention of the Toronto Star. And then they came to do a story on me. And then I, that caught the attention of Simon and Schuster because I have this back history as like a former criminal addict and homeless person. And so I guess the contrast of where I came from to winning those awards was enough to attract the attention of Simon and Schuster. Adria, the the acquisitions and PR person there. And so I I just sent off an email and we had a lunch together and they asked me to write from the ashes. And what I did actually is I sent them my old, they're like cue cards that I did in rehab to try and get better. This is my program. Basically, it's my 12 steps. That's what from the ashes were. And so I sent those off and they offered me a major contract and I didn't have a literary agent. I wasn't shopping. I never saw myself as an author. I still don't really. I'm a historian, right? I'm a historian of Great Plains, Métis history in the 19th century. And so, yeah. You're a historian who wrote a damn good memoir, Jesse. So, and that makes you a damn good writer. So I feel like you need to own that on top of everything else. But let's talk about the challenges of writing memoir. I take my hat off to anyone who writes memoir. Really, I do, because... Gosh, the process is just, you know, I've written multiple novels and as a novelist, I get to make shit up, which is awesome. To have to look at like your own life and your own darkness and have to delve into that and confront it and relive it is something that I really I admire people who are able to do that. And something you and I've spoken about before is, you know, it's difficult enough sitting down to write that stuff with brutal honesty, because I feel like it's human nature to always position ourselves in a more favorable light to try and make ourselves look better. And, you know, in your memoir, you it was just warts and all, boy. It was a head-on confrontation of who you were. But I've heard other memoirists who, when I say to them, have you shown your work to a writing group? Have you shown your work to beta readers as you're busy writing? They go, oh, no, it's too personal. I can't show it to anyone. And then I think of you who night after night after night had to talk to book clubs about all of this stuff. And I'm thinking, if you can't share your work before it's published, how the heck are you going to talk about your work and these things after it's published? So can you speak about the challenges of that? Sure. Yeah, that's uh, the publishes of, I would say, emotional and spiritual exhaustion from memoir writing. It's a real, real thing, right? For the first two and a half years that From the Ashes was on the charts and I was doing book clubs like four a day, you know, to three a day. I spoke to hundreds of thousands of people that way. I had to see a trauma therapist while I was doing that stuff. I had to put lavender underneath my nose to trick my brain, my olfactory, because lavender apparently helps with trauma. And then afterwards, I would smoke cigars and I would use the tobacco in a traditional way and try to release my prayers with it that way. I wasn't just smoking a cigar, right? And so I had that in place. My cat's like my mental health support worker. She used to come in my office until she got old and started peeing everywhere. But back then, she was right there with me. And I would just reach over and pet her. And I also had like mementos or artifacts around me of loved ones. Like I have my family's road allowance here, a picture of that here. I have my niece, Alexa, who wants to be a writer. And so I just look at her and I think of the the wonderful things. I also want to make clear that 
while I was writing my memoir, I only shared what I could, right? I only shared what I could. I was out there for 11 and a half years off and on. And the worst of what happened just didn't make it into the book because I can't talk about it. And so in that, yeah, just know that even though the things are traumatic and incredible to the regular reader, to a street person, that's just everyday mundane stuff that they go through. And I couldn't talk about it all because I knew that if I delved into my deepest, deepest secrets that I would be inviscerated every time I, I, I stood in public. So I only gave a little peek of that life just to let the reader know exactly what I was going through, like the feeling of it, you know. Uh, without actually talking about all of the stuff. so Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine. You know, you said everybody's got a memoir or two in them. I'm like, I'm boring as shit. I've got nothing. <laughs> I've got nothing. But at the same time, the hard work that, you know, and like you say, having to see a therapist while you're discussing all of this, because that's a thing that I want our listeners to take away. You're not sitting in some darkened room working on something by yourself and then it goes out into the world and that's it. Because... You know, as Jesse has discovered, when a book like this goes out into the world, other people read it, they get their own opinions about it. You know, how frustrating is that for you, Jesse? Because that's completely out of your hands once it goes out into the world. Yeah, I had an elder a long time ago that said, don't listen to the clapping hands of the crowd, right? And she said this at the beginning of my book, The Tour. She's a very famous memoirist in the 1970s, and she went through it herself. The community, the indigenous community turned on her. All people in power turned on her. She had a really rough time. And so in her time, she, you know, faced this resistance. And it wasn't until a generation or two later that the younger readers, when they were reading it, they related to what she was saying. And she became almost like a legend now within our communities. And so she said that she got through that criticism because another writer before her told her, don't look at the reviews and don't listen to what people say. Everyone's got an opinion just like a butthole, right? And they're going to use it. And that's just the way humans are. And you have to be okay with that. And when you don't look at the reviews, either positive or negative, then you don't let any of that in. And the trick is, the hard part is that there will be 99 or 98% positive and there'll be those 2% that you focus on, right? That like really hurt you. And she was trying to warn me, I just have to accept and move on and not listen to any, you know, clapping hands or the criticism that people have. I just have to write for myself. Yeah, excellent, excellent advice there. So Jesse, in terms of practical advice for our listeners, once you started writing this, the memoir follows a very linear timeline. There is a prologue that puts you in prison in the future, like a two-page prologue, and then the rest is from your childhood, you know, onward. Is that the way you wrote it, or did you kind of write it all over the place depending on what you were feeling that particular day? Yeah, that's exactly, that was the latter. It was fragments of memory that came to me, say, like I was listening to, I don't know, Steve Earle's Copperhead Road. I was like, oh, that reminds me of Cape Breton when I was down, down east. I'd write about that a line or two. Or when I was trying to figure out my resentments when I was in what's called professional development class in rehab. I had to write, oh, when did I first learn to steal, right? Because I have to figure out my criminal behavior. Oh, that's when, you know, I stole the chocolate bars. So I wrote it down. And it just went like that. And it was for years like that, right? Writing down these fragmentary things. And when I started working with Simon & Schuster, those are what I fired off, right? I had a big pile of them, that, and I had a blog of them as well. And their editor, Lori Grassi, she went through and she picked through all my fragments, you know, and she said, okay, we're going to make a meta narrative out of this, that other stuff, the, you know, 60% of material we can't use, we're just going to cut away because it doesn't complement or strengthen this meta narrative of love that we're trying to create here. And so that editorial eye came after you know, the, those that we knitted those fragments of memory together. And so I think all memoirs start that way. I don't think anybody starts, okay, I was a little boy and then just writes their life right through. That, that'd be really hard to do, you know. 
Yeah, and, you know, a lot of people get memoir and biography confused because biography is a story of your whole life, everything that happened, whereas a memoir is focusing on a very specific part of your life or a short period of your life. And for you, it was this part of your life that the intergenerational trauma that led to the homelessness and the criminal behavior, etc., etc. So everything that you wrote was seen through that particular lens. So although you covered a lot of ground in this book, it definitely isn't you know, a biography, it definitely is memoir because everything that you unpack is very much through that lens. So can and I speak to that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, yeah, I'd love you to, yeah. Yeah, and there's been some critiques of my work, I would say. They say, well, why do you, what happened after you got better, right? After, like, you know, when you became a professor, tell us all that stuff that happened after you went to rehab. I'm like, well, it was a memoir. It was about my time on the streets and like how I got off of them. You know, you don't ask that when you watch Made, you know, the Netflix thing. You're not sitting there critically saying, well, why doesn't she show us what her life is like now as an author and all that stuff? Because it's not biography. That's why it's a memoir. And some people have gotten that confused, you know. And so when you write a, a memoir, be be aware of that because sometimes people get that confused. And you have to explain that sometimes in, when you go to book clubs and stuff. Okay, so for those who are working on memoir, do you have any parting words of wisdom, anything that you can share with them, either in terms of the craft or just in terms of the process, making it a bit easier on themselves? Yeah, I got a few things I would like to say about that. I would say, one, be aware that when you write a memoir, it's like throwing a hand grenade into Christmas dinner. It's going to disrupt your family. It's going to hurt some people. You have to accept that some people will see events in a completely different light and they'll see others in a completely different life, loved ones. And to stick with your truth, stick with your truth. Don't write to please them right? Or pull, don't write to pull punches so that their feelings won't be hurt. That's really important. You have to tell your truth because in your truth, people connect with that. That's what they connect with. They don't connect with performative stuff. As fancy as you can write it, they just won't. So another thing is get your facts straight. Make sure you do your research. Go back and look at your life and the topics that you're going to write about because it will come into question after it's published. And so you have to do your due diligence before it comes out. Get your permissions. Get your things signed. Go over with a, a good lawyer that can protect you. You don't want to publish something that could. If you're like me, I wrote about a lot of the crimes that I did. I had to. Our legal process was like six or eight months long. It was huge. And so that was because of the incriminating stuff I was talking about. I had to get it right. You know, it's in the public record. So do that work. And then beyond that, have someone that will tell you the honest truth when you send your ark out to people. My wife is the great truth teller in my life, and she will literally tell me if it sucks. And I hate her for it in the moment, and it hurts my feelings, and we don't talk for a couple days because my writing is so special to me. But then I realize that she's telling me the truth because she wants me to connect with people. And she's doing that because she actually loves my craft and loves me. And so find that person. Right. And make sure that you just don't have one of those people, have two or three that you can really trust. It's good to have one of those people as a writer. Lucy was an editor in Spain for five years, and that's why I get her to read my stuff. And then I always send it to my community that I'm talking about to make sure that they okay the stuff that I'm talking about, that it's accurate. And all those things I did before and during while uh, From the Ashes was being published. Yeah. Excellent, excellent advice. Jesse. what a joy to chat to you. It's our third time chatting. I don't know who I love more, you or your wife. She's just such an absolute honey. And, you know, I always get so much talking from you. I always feel like I, I leave our discussions a better human being, and that's always the best discussions to have. So thank you so much for that. And thank you for so generously sharing your advice. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on your show, Bianca. It's wonderful. And I'll send Lucy your love. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. 
Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. It's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. We're premiering a new segment that we plan to have with every bonus episode, whereby Carly, Cece, and myself answer your questions. Now, you will be leaving these questions for us in the form of an audio recording. You can find the link for that on my website, biancamaray.com. Go to the podcast tab, scroll down, and you'll see the link there for where you click on it to record your question. And then we'll do our best to answer it for you. Let's begin with the first one. The novel I'm working on is about 60,000 words, so I feel like I'm about 20,000 words short. What big picture strategy would you suggest for getting that word count up? As a general note, this is obviously very specific to someone's work, but as a general note, I would recommend weaving in a subplot. Um, because that might that might be an easy fix. Easy fix is a lie. There are no easy fixes, but that might be a, an adequate fix. 
Yeah, I mean, I I would probably, you know, look at my synopsis, take it all apart and realize why I'm short, depending on so many things. Uh, and some novels are just meant to be short, you know what I mean? But getting it up that little bit, even to 70, um, we don't need to get into, you know, the big the big Twitter discourse about word count that was a couple weeks ago. I don't want to have that again. Um, but if you were involved or read that Twitter discourse, you'll know people have a lot of opinions about word count. My opinion is always, you need to write the book, you need to write, you know, you need to tell the story you need to tell. And if it's too short, you just don't have enough story there. Yeah, a good suggestion might be looking at something like Jessica Brody's Save the Cat Writes a Novel, and checking all of those action beats, you know, because besides the three act structure in terms of structuring a novel, you know, hers is much more detailed in terms of action beats, false victories, false defeats, the long dark night of the soul, etc, etc. And I feel like if you map your story out against those kinds of action beats, you're going to either find where there is an action beat that you've missed, that you can add in, or you know, you're going to discover that the story doesn't have enough plot, in which case, you may have to go back to the drawing board. Because one thing you definitely don't want to do is just, you know, expand on what you already have and just kind of waffle for the sake of waffling or giving more um, description or things like that. Because, you know, that's exactly the kind of thing that an agent and an editor is going to see for what it is, which is just filler. Okay, right. Next question. Good morning. I have a question for you all. I would like to know how you identify upmarket fiction as well as book club fiction. And I want to know if you all would use this term or either term in a query. Thank you so much for answering my question. I appreciate all of your guidance. Thank you. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this um, because it's very important to think about you know, when, as an agent, when I'm pitching things for different categories. So I have my own definition of what upmarket fiction is. Um, I've actually, I have it up on my website, carlywaters.com. You can just Google even like Carly Waters upmarket fiction. It's a very popular infographic. And so I'll kind of explain the infographic to you. So my upmarket fiction definition is this. Universal themes that everybody can connect to. The aim is a thoughtful discussion because of its accessibility to real life, right? It's proximity to real life. It blends lines of commercial and literary. So we're talking about commercial in the terms of like it's very pacey, literary in the sense that the quality of writing is high. It's appropriate for book club discussion. So my idea of upmarket fiction is very synonymous with book club fiction. The writing itself needs to be very accessible. It's quality writing that tackles commercial plot topics or themes. So again, high quality of writing, accessible otherwise. It's very character driven. So literary fiction tends to be very word driven, right on a line level. Commercial fiction tends to be very plot driven. Upmarket fiction to me is defined as more character driven. That's another one of my definitions. So I would recommend you you check out my, my blog post. I have three infographics. One's literary fiction, one's upmarket, and one's commercial. And, and hopefully those pictures will help you out. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Hi, Bianca. Carly and Cece. My name is Dallas and I am a huge fan of the podcast. I discovered it recently and have been voraciously binging it ever since. I would just like to thank you quickly for your amazing advice and guidance. It's already helped me immensely and I can't wait to apply it further once I am ready to query. My question is about genre, specifically books that straddle the lines, like for example, women's fiction and romance. I know a lot of books can fall into either category, and I wondered if authors should try to pick one when querying or if it's okay to specify that genre mix. Thank you so much again for all of your help. I am really enjoying the podcast and can't wait to listen to more. Yeah, women's fiction and romance are very different because they're marketed entirely differently. The covers are different. You know, the distribution is different. Everything is different about it. So I think it's very important to have a very strong distinction between whether your book is women's fiction or romance. The difference in my mind is that a romance novel, the plot is entirely hinged on the love story itself. And there's a lot of women's fiction that is romantic, but there has to be a bigger plot about career, marriage, friendship, some sort of overarching thing. So to me, that's the difference. I would say go read Baby Proof by Emily Giffen. Although the plot is all about, you know, the couple, because it's so much focused on her and, you know, whether she wants to be a mother or not and how that is so tied to her journey as a person, I see it as women's fiction. So, Great. Thank you. 
All right, let's move on to the next one. Hi, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. I love your podcast. I think my question is mostly for Carly. Carly, you've talked um, several times about um, agents and and kind of readers in general not being ready for books based around 9-11, that it's too close, which I totally understand. Um, thinking about that, there are so many books about World War II, some of which I really feel romanticize World War II. And so my question for you, aside from just the distance of time, what makes it okay for World War II, I, I think in some ways to kind of be looked at as like a, a, an easy premise for some high stakes um, or to kind of be a setting for romance? And do you feel that that's okay? Um, or, or kind of, can you talk about that a little bit? Because I've been picking up on it and it's kind of starting to bug me a little as a reader. Thanks. I've actually had conversations with editors about this. Like, why why World War II? Like, why, why, why? Why does this keep going? And I'll talk about the 9-11 stuff later. But the World War II stuff. Okay, this is why. There is a very clear good guy and there is a very clear bad guy. And everybody is coming to that framework with the understanding of who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. And then you that's your scaffolding, right? The scaffolding's done. You're just building upon that scaffolding. It is familiar, therefore comforting. That's why a lot of book clubs are choosing World War II fiction, even though it is, as you said, romanticized, right? It was like obviously a horrific war, right? It's a war we're talking about. But the romanticization is about the comfort level and knowing what the scaffolding is that's already been built, right? Okay. So that's why it's essentially, even though it's gross to call it that, it is essentially a comfort read because everybody has this equal understanding of who is the good guy and who is the bad guy. So um, that's kind of that description. 9-11. The, the repercussions of that are still so ongoing and still so close to people. It is very hard to have distance to it. And, I, and I've talked about this before about how I have agent friends and editor friends who like were in Manhattan, like the moment it happened, right? They're like at their agent desk and like turning around and like watching, watching the towers fall. Like so, it is so close, so close to people, right? And not to say that World War II isn't, um, there's still so many things that have, you know, are, are still, are still with us, but I just still don't know if people are ready and the comp, it's so complicated in terms of the, the, the good guy, bad guy stuff um, and the Islamophobia that has just like, you know, reverberated and just increased um, because of 9-11. So I'm trying not to get political here, <laughs> but I, I just, I think that we're, we're just not able to use it as scaffolding and commercial fiction the way that, that World War II is. I don't disagree, but I do wonder about the 9-11 novels that I've read that felt, I think, I think, I don't know, I'm thinking of like extremely loud and incredibly close. I'm thinking of The Good Life. I'm thinking of uh, The Lies That Bind. I definitely think it's, you know, because it's closer, it's so much more complicated. But at the same time, you mentioned editors and, and agents who, you know, obviously could look out their window and see it. And they're the authors who could see it too. Right. And so if I think it's all about how you do it, obviously, and I do think that there I'm sure that there are people who are like, I'm never going to read this because I can't like there are things that I could never read about for sure that to do with 9-11. I just wonder whether it, it, it might be because as as New York centric as publishing is 9-11, it wasn't just an attack you know, on New York, but it was an attack on New York, including, right? Like one of the attacks was. And so I wonder whether it has to do with, you're hurting my city, you're hurting my setting, you're hurting my, my backyard. So I think that was it too. Like World War II didn't take place like physically in the US. Like there were big consequences to the US, but the fighting didn't happen in, in the ground. I mean, I guess it was Pearl Harbor, so that's different, but it was one attack of so many. So I think that's it too. I think it's all about how you do it, right? Like you said. It's all about execution of the story. Hi, guys. I have a question for Cece. I wanted to ask her due to her law experience, plus her affinity for writing your enemies into your story. Um, so I would like to include someone I know in my story, changing the name and the identifying details, of course. But I want to include near direct quotes because honestly, I can't come up with anything as strange or as evil as the things this man told me. So my question is, is that legal? <laughs> Can I say things that this person said to me? Or should I try to use my imagination a little more? Thanks so much. Everyone listening to this podcast, I am not, nor will I ever give you legal advice. I am not your lawyer. 
I cannot do that. That would be super freaking irresponsible of me. Do not ask me for legal advice. I say this with all the love. I will also say that hypothetically speaking, if I were to hypothetically write a novel, I would not worry so much because it's a novel, right? And you can fictionalize things. If I were to write a memoir, however, I would hypothetically be very, very concerned because a memoir is obviously nonfiction. So there are many hypothetical considerations to take into consideration. And I would tell the author to read, you know, the whole bad art friend debacle uh, where an author took something that another author had said and they pretty much they fictionalized this character but used pretty much verbatim what this person had said and that has been a hell of a thing um, as well so I don't know I, I would say you should definitely try and and fictionalize things Hey, Carly, Cece, and Bianca. This is Sarah in Birmingham, the lady that wanted you guys to come to the beach. And every time I write down a question, I'm like, nope, that's answered in the podcast. So I got nothing other than I'm doing cartwheels and thanking you for what you guys do. So keep doing it and have a great night. Hi, this is Heather from Cincinnati, Ohio. I have a question for Cece, Carly, and Bianca. First, I'd like to know, how did you end up in the publishing industry? Is this something that you always knew that you wanted to do? And the second part of that is to date, what is your favorite moment so far? Thank you. So I always wanted to be an agent since the moment I figured out what an agent was. It was a light bulb moment of reading. I did a master's in publishing, so I was super nerdy. And before my master's even started, got the textbook and started reading it. And then I got to the chapter on literary agent. And I just had that kind of brain explosion moment because, you know, the fact that I could work with authors, do the selling, travel, you know, be a part of the project management, you know, publicity of marketing. Like to me, it was just the best of all of the world. So I didn't understand why any of my classmates wanted to go into one department. Like to me, agenting was was it, you know? And so my first job in publishing was an agency assistant at the Darley Anderson Agency in London. I had an amazing mentor, um, Madeline Milburn, who was a phenomenal agent. She was my first boss and, and really just set me up for so much success. And yeah, it's it's been a dream come true. I, I absolutely love this job, everything about it. I am also not qualified or trained to do anything else. So I, I will be doing this job forever because I have no other skills. And in terms of my, my favorite moment to date, gosh, that's a really really, really hard one. You know, there are so many moments that are small and mean so, so, so much. And there's also the moments that are huge, you know, the times that I, you know, sold a book for over $200,000. I'm like, that's sweet. You know, that's super exciting, you know, but those aren't the, those aren't the moments um, to me that are, that are the most exciting. Sometimes it's just having like absolute breakthrough moments with my clients in terms of editing. Currently, I have a book on the New York Times bestseller list that's been there for 50 weeks. Five zero. We have two more weeks to go until we're at 52. And that's going to be a pretty, pretty significant milestone for me. So I'm kind of in, in the moment of, of living that. But yeah, I mean, every day is an absolute dream. There's so many tough, tough things that are involved with this job, but I, I love it. I'm, I'm super passionate and super nerdy about it. Awesome, Carly. Cece? So my story is the opposite of Carly's. I I've always loved books and I've always loved stories, but I, I was told I was going to be a lawyer, probably, possibly, and then I kept repeating it. And then, yeah, I, I went to law school. I practiced law. I was so bored, but I don't think I knew it. I actually know for a fact I didn't know it. When I burned out and it was bad, no one knew except for me. Like I was exhausted, but no one had any idea. And my husband was actually the one who told me, maybe you should take some time off. Yeah, and there was like a external reason that made sense because we were moving. So I did. And I think anyone like living in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, which is, you know, where we were living at the time, anyone would have gone to the beach and gone to spas and just relaxed. What I did was I read all the books I could get my hands into and, and wrote. Like that's all I did. Like I spent all my time indoors reading and writing. And it was the happiest I've ever been up till then. And I don't know. I remember the day that Bruno got home. Bruno is my husband. And he said to me, I'm married to a different woman. And I was like, what? And he meant me. He meant that I was happy, that I was a different person. And yeah, and my friends who know me from before, I'm a completely different person today. Like it's still me in, in some way, but I love what I do. I have a friend who has twins and she spends all night up with her twin babies. And she texted me the other day. And she texts me in the middle of the night because I don't sleep because I have insomnia. And she says, Cece, you would be baller at parenting because you don't sleep anyway. 
And I tell her, no, I wouldn't, because spending all night awake reading a book is not the same as spending all night taking care of two babies or one baby or even like half a baby, let's be honest. And I think it's sort of the same thing. As an agent, I work really, really long hours. I work all the time. And I used to work all the time as a lawyer too, but they're not the same. Even though like the number of hours is quite actually the same, it's just not. Because when you do something that you love, the way it lands on your body and in your mind and in your like heart is just completely different. So I went back to school for publishing and I remember a moment. I can't pick a favorite moment. That would be impossible. But I do remember a moment when I was still in school and I walked into a classroom and the contrast with my law school was totally different. Like my law school, everyone was serious and super just uptight and, you know, very driven and focused in a way that was just very annoying. And I remember walking into the classroom and we were having a discussion about these characters that we were reading in, in the book that we were all just reading for fun. And the discussion got really heated, which was, which happened all the time in law school too, like really heated discussions. And I remember looking around and just taking a step back from the discussion and going, oh my God, like these are my people. I am having conversations about fictional characters. And if you know me, that's all I've ever wanted to do. And I made it a reality. And it's, it's scary to start a new profession when you're like 34, I think at the time. It's really scary. It's scary to give up the stability, the prestige, the money. It's scary to, you know, look at someone like, like Harley, who's been doing this for 12 years and be like, am I ever going to be as good at this as you are? But I would take the feeling of being scared every day over the feeling of I'm getting emotional of not knowing you know what could happen if I try amazing Cece thank you and that's it for today's episode I hope you'll join us for next week's show in the meantime keep at it remember it just takes one yes calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.